Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violent Ends. Have I got a story for you today? If you've been around a while, you know one of my favorite things to do is dig up super old true crime stories from local newspapers. This is one that I found like a few years ago while I was researching something else, and it kind of had like an attention-grabby headline, so I put it on my list to do some more research on someday, see if there was enough there to do a story on. I didn't research it at all at the time. I just kind of knew like the broad strokes of what happened, not the when or the why or the was it ever solved. So this next part I'm going to tell you is entirely coincidental or not, depending on where you land with your belief of the paranormal. So my list of story ideas is like a mile long. Like don't ever worry about me running out of content. And again, This particular case has been on that list for a few years at least, but as I was sitting around at my desk at the bookshop the other day trying to decide on a case for this week's episode, this one just kind of jumped out at me like, bitch, it is time. (laughs) Like, it is time. So fancy me flabbergasted when I started actually researching this story and learned the following. A. This murder happened exactly 100 years ago this summer. All of these weeks and months and years that it's been on my list and it finally demanded to be covered right as the 100-year anniversary hits. That's, That's weird, right? Like, that's weird. Two, the murder happened right across the river from my store, like just on the other side of the Grand River, and the killer's trail which was tracked by a couple of floppy-eared bloodhounds, ended at the Grand Trunk train station, which is right across the street from my store in the other direction, which means the killer ran right past where my shop is now. My building was built in the 30s, so it wouldn't have been there at the time, but still, I'm right in the thick of the action on this one. C, the house where this murder occurred is a well-documented haunted house, like newspaper coverage, and everything. And lastly, this murder is unsolved, which is significant because the oldest cold case on the Lansing Police Department's records occurred in 1963, the murder of Everett Marlette, which we've talked about before. This case predates that case by 40 years. So what I'm telling you, friends, is that we have uncovered Lansing's real oldest cold case, which happened 100 years ago this summer. And I am convinced that the ghost of this victim, who is a ghost, according to the Lansing State Journal, 
reached their bony hand across the Grand River, grabbed me by the throat, and demanded that I bring attention to their forgotten, unsolved murder on this, the 100th anniversary. That's a little bit wild, right? Like the origin story for this one? That's a little kooky. All right, before we do get into the story of Lansing's true oldest cold case, I do need to thank today's sponsor. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. They also help track your wellness progress through their thoughtfully designed companion app. Supplements can be a huge support for how you feel, but Care Of recognizes that they're only one piece of the puzzle. So they just updated their app with new features to help you build a holistic wellness routine and help you track how your routine is working over time. As your needs and goals change, Care Of can help you adjust your routine to match. The assessment quiz can be retaken at any time to give you updated recommendations, and you can also adjust your habits and routine tracking in the app. The quiz to determine what supplements are best for you is super easy to take. If I can figure it out, anybody can, and the possibilities are endless. Among other things, it feels good to start my day with a little kick of rhodiola, which is an adaptogenic herb that helps your body adapt to occasional stress in a healthy way. And I love the convenience of care of. There's no measuring or counting or opening up 10 different bottles every morning. Everything comes in individual daily packs, making it so easy to just grab and go. For 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code VIOLENTENDS50. Again, that is takecareof.com, promo code VIOLENTENDS50 for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right. Buckle up, buttercups, because you're in for a wild ride. The Roaring Twenties, sandwiched between World War I and the Great Depression, on the heels of a worldwide pandemic, in the throes of Prohibition, the Twenties were a wild time for the United States. Here in Lansing, we were in the midst of the Great Fruit War, Ransom Eli Olds and his motor car company reigned supreme, and we were still carving Michigan's capital city out of the howling wilderness that it once was. The city's founding families still ran the show, the Turners, the Dodges, the Barneses, the Seymours, and the Britons. Now, my fellow Lanstronauts, you may not be familiar with that last name there, but by the end of this episode, you will be. William and Pearl Britton were among Lansing's most prominent crowd in its early days. William was a politician, serving as a city councilman for years, as well as a successful contractor who quite literally helped build the city. Many of the downtown buildings he constructed are still standing and in use today. His wife, Pearl, was a well-known socialite, active in a number of social circles, and together they had two daughters. William was the founder and developer of the Park Heights subdivision on Lansing's south side in the Morris Park neighborhood, so in that area that's kind of boxed in by Mount Hope, South MLK, South Washington, and the Grand River. Like many of the houses in that neighborhood, the Park Heights development was swanky. The Morris Park pool nearby was brand new. If you've never seen the Morris Park pool, 
It is gorgeous. It looks like something out of The Great Gatsby, and legislation was just passed to restore it. It's been closed down for several years now due to needing pretty expensive repairs, but those repairs were just approved in the latest state budget, so the Moores Park Pool is coming back, and that's super exciting. That's just a little a little aside, but back then it was just brand spanking new and very, very fancy. Britain built the Park Heights subdivision for himself and his people. A big house for him in Pearl, which was known as Britain Manor. A big house for his daughter and her husband right across the street. A house for his friend, the police chief, around the corner. A house for his priest, the next street over. Construction on the 2,700-square-foot Britain Manor was completed in 1922, and the Britons moved in promptly. The house was, and still is, located at 706 Britain Avenue. And yes, the street was named after the Britons. So now it's 1923, the year that we were introduced to the Walt Disney Company, Warner Brothers Pictures, and Time Magazine, among other things. The Britons are living their best life in their brand spanking new mansion, Britain Manor on Britain Avenue. William is 56, Pearl is 48. Their daughters are both grown, married, and out of the house. One of them lives in Illinois, while the other lives directly across the street from her parents. It's the last weekend in May. William is in Chicago on business, and the couple's daughter, who lives out of state, Mrs. Virgil Counselor, has come home for a visit with her husband. On Saturday, May 26th, Pearl spent the day with her daughters and their husbands before the counselors left to return to Evanston. It was late, and Pearl's other daughter, Mrs. William Clark, was worried about her mother being home alone overnight, so she offered to stay with her. Pearl was known to be vigilant to the point of being paranoid. She had a crippling fear of being attacked. She never went out after dark if she was alone. She didn't like to be alone at all. Period. She was always fretting over her daughter's safety, and she got them in the habit of walking down the middle of the street when they were out so that they would be in the range of streetlights and very visible. She was always worried that someone was going to break into her home, which makes it odd then that her husband would design and construct a house for them with floor-to-ceiling windows, just windows everywhere. So Pearl's daughter was like, Mom... I'll walk in the middle of the street to come sleep at your house tonight so you're not alone. And Pearl said, forget about it. I've got a friend coming over. And she did. Pearl's friend, Miss Helen Powers, an unmarried woman who lived downtown, arrived at Britain Manor around 10 p.m. on the 26th of May, 1923, to stay the night with Pearl because her husband was out of town. The two women stayed up talking for a couple of hours before deciding to go to bed around midnight. And then they went to bed. In the same room, Pearl's bedroom on the second floor. Listen, I don't know what things were like in the 1920s, but that is fucking weird to me. This was a big house, a mini mansion, if you will. Lots of bedrooms. So I can see maybe having a friend spend the night when my husband is out of town to keep me company, but in the same room, in the same bed, when there is enough room for each of us to sleep in our own wing of the house, 
This detail definitely piqued my interest, but none of the articles I found made a big deal about it. So maybe this was just normal, normal behavior back then? I don't know, but my eyebrows are raised. Anyway, Pearl and Helen went to bed around midnight, but they stayed up for a couple more hours. Okay, my eyebrows are up again. Between the hours of midnight and 2 a.m., so it's now May 27th, the women keep hearing noises. Rustling, shuffling, glass tinkling noises. They tried to convince themselves that it was probably just like a critter in the walls. And then just after 2 a.m., they heard a muffled sneeze. Could you imagine just hearing a fucking sneeze in the darkness of your home? Are you kidding me right now? It was at that moment that Pearl decided to take action. She got out of bed, crossed the room, and stepped out into the hall to turn on the light switch at the top of the stairs. According to Helen, she heard two sounds simultaneously. The sound of Pearl shouting, Oh! As if surprised or startled by something and a single gunshot. Helen, freaking the fuck out, jumped out of bed, locked the door, then ran to the window, pushed it open, and began screaming for help out over Britain Avenue. Those who weren't awakened by the gunshot itself were awakened by the screaming, and soon the entire neighborhood was gathered on the lawn of Britain Manor, including Pearl's daughter, who lived right across the street. Police were on scene within about 20 minutes, which seems excessive. Maybe not, though, because they didn't have, like, police cruisers. They had, what, Model T Fords and horses and their feet. So maybe that's not not that bad. Um, A ladder was used to help Helen down from the second-story window that she was hanging out of, still hysterically screaming. Police then entered the house and found a gruesome scene. Pearl Britton lay in a crumpled heap at the top of the stairs, blood pooling beneath her and splattered on the still brand new walls, ceiling, and hardwood floors. A single bullet had been fired upward into her nose and went through her brain, killing her instantly. Awful. She'd been shot at point-blank range, as indicated by powder burns on her face, with a thirty-two caliber revolver but her killer was long gone. I should fucking think so if it took 20 minutes for the cops to get there. Several neighbors, including the priest who would oversee Pearl's funeral, reported seeing a man in dark clothes, possibly a serge suit, which is like an old-timey, like, garage jumper, you know, like the dark blue all-one-piece coverall thing. Um, Yeah, so a serge suit and a dark hat running between houses. Bloodhounds were brought in, and they tracked a scent about a mile to the Grand Trunk train station on South Washington Avenue. There, authorities found the crew from a carnival that had been in town for the weekend, waiting to board a train out of town to their next gig. Carnies, of course. The men were all questioned, but all had alibis. They'd been standing there waiting for the train together since before the murder occurred. However... Once police got the idea of carnival workers being responsible, they refused to let it go, and they focused their efforts on finding two members of the carnival crew that weren't present at the train station with the others. Red and Grease were their names. Red and Grease. 
Authorities decided that the men, who both had criminal records and bad reputations, had attempted to burgle Britton Manor, were startled by Pearl at the top of the stairs, shot her, and fled. In support of their theory that it was these two carnies, uh, police learned something about Grease that fit with the physical evidence at the scene. Grease was missing his forefinger on each hand. He lost them doing carny shit. And the bloody handprints found on the walls and floor near Pearl's body were all in a three-finger pattern, suggesting that the killer was missing his forefinger. To be safe, authorities detained all five carnival workers from the train station and set out to find Red and Grease. By the time the Sunday morning edition of the Lansing State Journal broke the horrible news of Pearl Britton's murder just hours after her death, the Lansing Police Department were well on their way to solving the case. They had a motive, robbery, and a whole gaggle of suspects in custody. The problem was, the math wasn't mathing. Nothing had been taken from Britton Manor. In fact, a number of valuables were bypassed on the route to Pearl Britton's bedroom on the second floor. Police found the door to the coal chute open and an unlocked bathroom window on the second floor, leading them to believe that the killer either entered through the coal chute or scaled one of the home's pillars to the second floor bathroom window, conveniently the only unlocked window in the home. It's giving Lindbergh vibes, right? Like, how how convenient that on the random night that a burglar decides to break in, this one window is left open and it's the, the first window that he crawls up to and tries. Very, very convenient. The only physical evidence was the three-fingered handprints, which police took photos of. Fingerprinting as we know it today wasn't quite a thing yet, but authorities could compare the shit out of some Victorian fingerprint photography. Nothing at all on the first floor of the home was disturbed, aside from a couple of rugs that were bunched up as if the killer had slipped on them as he fled from the home, which he did by exiting through the sunroom. The five carnival workers police encountered at the train station all had alibis, and Red and Grease were not hard to track down. Red, real name Mike Crowley, and Grease, real name George Grease, had both been fired from the carnival Friday night, the night before the murder, and had left Lansing by train Saturday morning, several hours before Pearl Britton's murder. This was easily proven through train ticket receipts and alibis. The carny lead was a bust. By Tuesday, two days after the murder, authorities no longer believed burglary to be the motive. Having somehow already fully investigated all of William Britton's political and business connections, they set their sights on another unlikely boogeyman, the black man. And I say it this way to properly convey how ridiculous this theory and the reasoning behind it was. Two black men were detained for reasons known only to authorities. They traveled to Ann Arbor to question Charles Bell, who had no known connection to the Britons or even the Lansing area, and they did this only because he'd been arrested on a concealed weapons charge the day after the murder. In Ann Arbor, neither of the guns he was found with were capable of firing a 32 caliber bullet, which is what killed Pearl Britton. So police knew this, but they went all the way to Ann Arbor to question him anyway. 
And then there was John Stewart, a Detroit native who was wrapped up in the Prohibition racket and often did business in Lansing. This is an actual quote from the Lansing State Journal, so I apologize in advance for the language, but this is word for word what it said. Sheriff Atchison believes that John Stewart, 39, the Negro from Philadelphia, whom the police hold, has no connection with the case, but may be useful later. While Stewart does not probably know anything directly in line with the case, he is still suspected by the police to have some information which may lead to a tangible clue involving the mystery. What the actual fuck? Because this was a literal witch hunt with zero standing, both Charles Bell and John Stewart were released from custody pretty quickly, but not before their names were dragged through the mud in the newspapers. The audacity of some people's children. I can't. I can't. Also on Tuesday, two days after the murder, Pearl Britton's funeral was held in Lansing where she'd lived her entire life. She was buried at Evergreen Cemetery. Her husband had been called home from Chicago and her daughter, who lived in Evanston, was literally on her way home from Lansing when her mom was murdered. So immediately upon returning home, she got the news and she and her husband turned back around and came back to Lansing. All City of Lansing offices were closed the day of Pearl's funeral so that Williams' co-workers and colleagues could attend, and the city offered a $4,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer. First of all, what a random dollar amount. We couldn't just do $5,000. Second of all, that's $4,000 money, which would be over $70,000 today. Do you recognize this three-fingered hand? Posters were plastered all over town, and the murder of one of Lansing's most prominent socialites, wife of a city councilman and a prominent builder, continued to dominate the headlines. On June 16th, three weeks after the murder, detectives traveled to Alma to question a man who'd sent a letter to the Lansing Police Department claiming to know who killed Pearl, that it was an inmate at Jackson Prison. This man was, of course, full of shit. But through this investigation, it was discovered that the man had written other letters as well because he was a member of the Black Hand Gang, which we've talked about before, and he was involved in extortion plots at a number of local banks. So they solved a case here, just not the one that they were looking to solve. With the Carnies and the Black men out of the running, authorities turned their attention to another marginalized group, the immigrants. So they were real quick to rule out any rivals or enemies of Williams, and then all of a sudden, he's got a mortal enemy, a Russian immigrant by the name of Mike. I will spell his last name for you, but I am not going to even attempt to say it. It's spelled S. P-E-P-O-V-O-L-O-F-F. So you figure that out because I'm not even going to try. Mike the Russian was a bootlegger. He sold illegal liquor out of the home that he owned near the corner of South Martin Luther King at the time still called Logan Street and Brahmin Street, which is very near the Park Heights subdivision. And William Britton did not like that. Problem was, Mike the Russian and his bootleg crew were there first, 
So when William chose the location for his personal little swanky subdivision, he went to the city and was like, get these bootlegging immigrants out of there, please. And the city was like, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. We would need actual proof to arrest these people. We can't just kick them out of the neighborhood. So William, not used to not getting his way, got them the proof that they needed. He set old Mike the Russian up. He had one of his employees purchase illegal liquor from Mike with marked bills. Then he tipped off the police who were just conveniently ready and waiting to raid Mike's house. So they found the marked bills and Mike was arrested on bootlegging charges and sentenced to Jackson prison for six months to a year. And William, also not used to the concept of revenge, apparently, thought that he had won this battle. But six months to a year isn't a long time. And when Mike got out, he still owned that house on Logan Street, right near where the Britons were now living. He allegedly told anyone who would listen that he was going to get William Britton for setting him up and sending him to prison. He would shout profanities at the Britons when he passed them in public, he went right back to his bootlegging ways and allegedly threatened to blow up the house of one of his neighbors, Miss Hilly, when she reported his illegal activity to the police, jeopardizing his probation. So this sounds like a pretty vocal, well-known enemy of William Britton, right? Yet authorities knew nothing about him until almost a month after the murder even went so far as to put out a statement to the media saying that William Britton had no known enemies. And that seems suspicious to me. Because of all of the trouble that the locals in Lansing were giving him, Mike the Russian had moved to Detroit and did most of his bootlegging there, but he still owned that house in Lansing near where the Brittons lived. Conveniently, he was in town the weekend of Pearl Britton's murder. He was known to dress in serge suits. His car, an old Ford sedan, matched the description of a car spotted parked on a street near Britain Manor the night Pearl was killed. And, according to authorities, photos of his fingerprints matched the photos of the fingerprints from the scene, even though he had all of his fingers. It was discovered that Mike was back in Lansing again the week after the murder, he retrieved his wife, Mary, who he'd left here for some reason. He rented out his house, and he made arrangements for his new tenants to make remote payments through an insurance agency because he didn't intend to come back often, if ever. According to neighbors who spoke with Mike about Pearl's murder when he came back the next weekend, you know, they were like, oh my God, can you believe this happened? His remarks were all in the vein of, it's a shame the killer didn't get William as well. So authorities launched this big search for Mike with the last name I can't pronounce. William Britton even joined the police on a trip to Detroit to question Mike's neighbors and acquaintances. That seems a bit unorthodox. Um, yeah, that's weird. And if you think I'm being way too critical of the law here, I promise you there is a reason which I will reveal to you soon. While the detectives and Pearl's widow were in Detroit, Mike was here in Lansing. Apparently, he popped in for a visit, at which point he was informed that authorities were looking for him and his name had been all over the newspapers as the prime suspect in Pearl Britton's murder. 
So Mike walked straight into the Ingham County Prosecutor's Office like, I heard you bitches was looking for me. And they were like, oh, yeah, hi, this is awkward. We, we weren't ready for you. So they detained him, they questioned him, and according to Mike, he was staying with friends in Grand Ledge the night of the murder, which is not far at all. It takes like five, ten minutes, depending on where you're going in Grand Ledge to Lansing today. But back in 1923, with the modes of transportation available and the state of the roads, it took a lot longer to get back and forth between the two. So being in Grand Ledge was a solid alibi then, and it definitely would not be today. Curiously, immediately after dropping Mike off at the prosecutor's office to discuss the case, his wife Mary drove straight out to Grand Ledge, presumably to arrange this alibi that he was telling the police about. Another friend of Mike's, one who lived much closer to the Britain home, told authorities that Mike had stayed with him that night and that he easily could have gone to Britain Manor committed the murder, and been back in his bed asleep within 15 to 20 minutes with no one any the wiser. According to Mike and his attorney, he did not speak or understand English well enough to be questioned without an interpreter, which he was initially denied. But according to authorities, Mike was communicating perfectly fine until they started asking him questions he didn't have good answers for, Then he started speaking in more and more broken English and asking for an interpreter and telling them that he didn't understand. Mike the Russian was arrested on June 25th, 1923, almost a full month after Pearl Britain's brutal murder. Headlines screamed that a warrant for murder was imminent, but it never came. A few days later, the Lansing State Journal announced that Mike had been released from custody due to a lack of evidence. Through his attorney, Mike threatened to sue the Lansing Police Department. And then, the murder of Pearl Britain disappeared from the headlines completely. When the wife of a prominent businessman and local politician was brutally murdered in her mini-mansion on a street that bore her name, authorities blamed the Carnies, the Blacks, the Immigrants, But there was never any mention that I could find of the most obvious motive of all, a sapphic scandal. The night she was murdered, Pearl Britton was sharing a bed with another woman in a big, beautiful house full of other beds and bedrooms. Yet that woman, the only person known to be in the house at the time of the murder, was never a suspect. Nor was Pearl's husband, who she may or may not have been cheating on, with a woman. The husband is always a suspect. Always. But the well-connected William Britton never was. Yes, he was physically in Chicago when his wife was killed, but he had money and lots of it. He could have easily hired someone to do the deed. Now, You may think that I'm being a little too tinfoil hatty here, but that's because I know something that I haven't told you yet. A lot of these little details caused some eyebrow raising as I was finding them, as I was doing my research. Like something just felt very off. It was not adding up. But it wasn't until I found this that I knew for sure that there was some shady ass business afoot here. In 1952, 
Nearly 30 years after Pearl Britain's murder, the Lansing State Journal published an interview with Alfred Seymour, who served as the chief of the Lansing Police Department from 1918 to 1938, and thus would have been the police chief during both the Britain murder investigation and the Fruit Wars, just FYI. It was kind of one of those look-back-on-the-cases-he-worked interviews, and Seymour was asked specifically about the Britain murder. He said, and this is a direct quote from the article, he said, There was a lot of talk at the time about who did the shooting, but my personal theory has always been that it was done by a carnival worker. There was a carnival in town that day, and we got Sheriff Hugh Silsby's bloodhounds and tracked this guy right down to the Grand Trunk Railroad on Washington Avenue. And as far as I know, that's where the Britain murder case ended. We never had another clue. Fucking what, dude? Are you... <laughs> I had to read that like five times. I could not believe that I read that. The man in charge of the investigation said that, really lied right to everyone's faces with his whole chest, and nobody called him out on it. He arrested and released seven carnival workers, two black men, and a Russian immigrant who later threatened to sue his department over the case. This case made headlines for a month straight before mysteriously disappearing from the news cycle. This was the murder of a prominent socialite in one of Lansing's most uppity neighborhoods in their brand new mini mansion, the wife of a city councilman who helped build downtown literally and has a street named after him still to this day. There is no way, there is no way that the police chief just conveniently forgot all of that and then the case just disappeared? Not only from the public eye, but a couple of changes of the guard later, and the LPD forgot all about it as well. Something shady happened here, and the city helped cover it up. I believe that 100,000%. Whether William Britton was responsible for Pearl's murder or Pearl's possible affair with another woman played a role, you will never convince me that this was not a cover-up. And William Britton the lifelong Lansing resident who built a neighborhood and named an estate and a street after himself, he left town after his wife's murder and settled in Owasso, where he lived until his death in 1946. He is buried beside Pearl at Evergreen Cemetery in Lansing. In 1997, Britton Manor made the front page of the Lansing State Journal once again as part of a Halloween special. By this point, it was an adult foster care home, still called Britain Manor. The residents believed the manor was being haunted by the ghost of Pearl Britain. There were reports of people being tapped on the shoulder, hearing a disembodied woman's voice, footsteps on the staircase where Pearl was murdered. So, if you believe in ghosts, Pearl Britain is apparently one of Lansing's heavy hitters, and as the author of Haunted Lansing, I'm embarrassed because I, this was news to me. Uh, and then that begs the question, how coincidental is it that I just happened to feel the pull to finally cover this story and bring it back into the public eye 
a hundred years, exactly a hundred years after it happened. That's super weird, right? One last little fact about Britton Manor. In 2006, the owners of the adult foster care home operated out of the manor, Ken and Dolores Goff, as well as their daughter, Jeannie Miller, and her husband, Charles Miller, were all arrested for stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from their elderly disabled residents. They stole savings bonds from safety deposit boxes and used residents' credit cards to buy computers and expensive dogs and senior pictures for their kids. They even financed vehicles in residents' names. All four wound up pleading guilty to defrauding residents. I'm not sure what their sentences were, but they were facing all of them anywhere from like five to ten years in prison. I couldn't find any articles after their sentencing, but um, yeah, so that's fucked up. So lots of bad juju at Britain Manor, which is still standing today. According to the Google machine, it is now a senior living community called Evergreen Place, which is a little bit strange because Evergreen is the name of the cemetery that the Britons are buried in. So the Britons built Britain Manor, they died and went to Evergreen Cemetery, and then Britain Manor was renamed Evergreen Manor. That's just, I don't know, that one's probably just a coincidence, but it's a little weird, right? This whole one is, is just weird all the way around. And that, friends, is the story of Lansing's oldest unsolved murder, the 100-year-old murder of Pearl Britain, one of the city's most prominent residents. I've said the word prominent so many times in this episode that I'm annoying myself. Sorry, I won't say it again. Oh, wait. Yes, I will. I wrote it one more time. <laughs> one more time. Let's just do this whole line over. Uh, and that, friends, is the story of Lansing's oldest unsolved murder, the 100-year-old murder of Pearl Britain, once one of the city's most prominent residents, now one of the city's most prominent ghosts. My source today was strictly old newspaper articles, mostly 1920s Lansing State Journal stories, and even those were pretty hard to dig up. Uh, but you guys know that I do love to dig and find those really old cases. Never expected to find one quite this wild, though. And with that, I bid you adieu. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks, and just a heads up, uh, this next episode is our last episode until September. So the month of August is the month of May and the month of August are the months that we have our little breaks here at Violent Ends. Um, month of August is an absolute must because a festival of oddities is coming, and it's coming quick. It's September second and third, two days this year, out at the Courthouse Square Museum in Charlotte. Um, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Saturday and 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Sunday. This is our fifth year. We're so excited. We've got a lot of really, really cool stuff planned. Um, so mark your calendars if you don't have plans for Labor Day weekend yet to come to Charlotte to a Festival of Oddities, September 2nd and 3rd. So I'll see you there, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks with your last episode until September. Until then... Keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.